Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of the Fuji Love Podcast. This is the show all about the Fujifilm X series and GFX cameras and the photographers who love to use them. I'm Mark Sadowski, and this show, as always, is brought to you by Fuji Love Magazine. For the latest and greatest in all things Fujifilm, whether it's interviews or great articles, uh, great photos, head on over to fujilove.com and subscribe today. Joining me this week is Lee Varis. Lee is a fantastic photographer. He is an official ex-photographer, and his career is very diverse. He is a graphic artist. He is uh, an outstanding photographer and a great teacher and author. Lee, how are you, man? I'm good. Thank you for asking. <laughs> oh, my pleasure. So immediately your profile, uh, your your portfolio, I was drawn to the movie posters. And yeah. <laughs> your portfolio says that uh, you you did key art for for movie posters. What is what does that mean? Or what does that entail? You know, key art is uh, it's it's art that's repurposed for various things to promote the movie. So key art is the movie poster, billboards, bus shelters, uh, anything that is sort of the brand art for the movie is called key art. Okay. And wow, you're this is really diverse. You've done uh, Silence of the Lambs. You've done Lethal Weapon, Lethal Weapon 4, my favorite of Lethal Weapons. <laughs> yeah. Um, you're, you, 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 Tomb Raider is very prominent, but I got to say, I know you're very talented because you made uh, Jeff Speakman, the expert, look good. (laughs) (laughs) He was great. That guy was a fantastic guy. I love that guy. Really? I've I've never heard anything one way or the other. (laughs) Well, I don't know. I had a good time with him. He was uh, was great in the studio and he was very enthusiastic. And and, uh, I just never heard anyone say or fuck so many times. <laughs> <laughs> it was great. <laughs> That's awesome. And then, of course, you have my 90s favorite. God, this is dating me. Uh, the Crow. Uh, oh, was, yeah. Yeah. That was an I interesting was... project. Yeah. How so? Well, I mean, uh, you know. We... I mean, apart from the obvious, the, the brand yeah. new Well, I mean, when I was, I was approached to start doing work on that, um, he was still alive. They were still in production. Yeah. And then uh, uh, suddenly it was like, oh my God, you know, he, he died on the set and, and Paramount dropped it. So I had done all this work for Paramount because they were going to release the movie. And then they just kind of, they dropped it because it was just too controversial. Yeah. And, you know, so that's my involvement ended right there. Um, But uh, yeah. So yeah, that was the extent of it. None of my work ended up on the on the movie poster or anything, but you know. So, what would you say describes you better? Are you a graphic artist that's also a photographer? Are you a photographer that's also a graphic artist? Where I am a photo illustrator. Okay. So, so I take a concept and I create a photographic 
expression of that concept. And, uh, uh, you know, since I was sort of an early adopter of digital back in the day, I learned Photoshop very early and uh, I was very involved in the early iterations of, uh, of Photoshop and uh, specifically as it applied to uh, the uh, movie uh, advertising industry. Yeah. It is. So you're, you're dating back to... 1.0. Oh yeah. No. <laughs> well, you know, the first version of Photoshop I was aware of was called Barney scan. Yep. Right. Oh. So it was, a uh, it, they, they bundled the software with a scanner and then everybody said, Hey, this software is really cool. But, um, I was using, um, uh, something called color studio, which was, uh, 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 actually software that was distributed by Letraset, which mm-hmm. was the press-on type company. Let you, let you know how far yeah. back that was. And uh, Color Studio was very cool. It was uh, it did CMYK, and at the time, Photoshop 1.0 or 2.0 did not do CMYK. Right. So, you know, I, I wanted to use the professional software. Uh, uh, Color Studio was was a software uh, uh, programmed by Mark Zimmer and the guys that, that basically uh eventually did uh, uh painter yes and they were the first ones to have like layers and actually painter x2 had layers that, that's way back way back in the day yeah when you had to do each save and yeah <laughs> yeah it was interesting that <laughs> you know in the early days nobody knew how to do anything yeah so we all had to make it up as we went along and uh you know, I, I, I knew a lot of people in the industry and, and uh, you know, hobnobbed with all the, all these people. and But eventually ended up, you know, uh, with Photoshop, I was also involved with Live Picture, which is another old software package that is yep. now Dead Picture. But you know, <laughs> back in the day, it was considered a Photoshop killer, but... Uh, you know, in in the end, it didn't it didn't really go anywhere, and uh, you know, we all ended up back with Photoshop. The amount of Photoshop killers throughout the years, <laughs> oh my god, it's <laughs> it is insane. Your let's go right back to the beginning, like your your passion for art. Where where did that all uh, come from? Like where where did it begin in your mind? Uh, oh God, when I was really young, I was really involved. I, I, uh, I, I really, uh, gravitated to, to photography. I, I remember I was probably eight or nine years old and I very, uh, carefully composed this whole image of a plastic King Kong model attacking my apartment building. <laughs> and I, basically I, I photographed it so that the model was really close to the lens. And so it looked really big. Nice the apartment building was in the background and, you know, that was the extent of my special effects capability at the time. <laughs> and I, you know, I had a little Kodak, you know, Brownie camera. That's what yep. I used. And, you know, so, so that's, that was my start. And um, I, I ended up learning, uh, to process and develop black and white film for my father, who was a safety inspector uh, for insurance companies. So his gig was to go to uh, industrial, uh, 
you know, businesses and inspect the property and take pictures. And then he would use those pictures in his report. And because he was a cheap motherfucker, he, he had his children processing the film, you know, me, basically, uh, processing the black and film, black and white film and making prints. And we had we converted a bathroom into a dark room. And that was right my my introduction to photography. And I continued in high school. I took photography in high school and and in college I became a film major and I, you know. And then after college, I couldn't get a job in film. So I took a job as an assistant for an advertising photographer. Yep. And uh, in the end, uh, I ended up uh, gravitating to uh, uh, print advertising in the, in, in the movie industry. So it's a really funny full circle kind of thing. But uh, I ended up, you know, doing essentially still photo special effects using Photoshop for movie posters. Nice. So uh, early on with, with, with the movie industry, like how did that uh, change? I mean, granted you had to do uh, projects a certain way. How did that, did that increase your passion for the art or did that uh, change anything uh, in your mind? Because photography, you're, you're making the switch from photography to uh the the graphic world well i mean to me it was always photography yeah i was dealing dealing with photographic source materials and just combining them so it's it's, it was like what i used to do what i did with the the plastic model in front of the the apartment building i'm i'm compositing in the camera in that case yeah but later on i'm doing composites and creating images that are photographically real but sort of impossible uh, I mean, for a while, I was sort of the unofficial photographer of the Ender- for the Star Trek movies for the Enterprise. Yes. So every Star Trek movie poster had a picture of the Enterprise spaceship on it, and sometimes it was really small in the in the frame. And you know, because most of the time, movie posters are three big heads in the sky. We make a big joke about that. You know, it's yeah. always three big heads in the sky. So in in Star Trek, it was you know. Captain Kirk and, you know, maybe somebody else and a tiny little picture of the enterprise. But every time the enterprise appears on a, on a, on a movie poster before the reboot, let's say where it just became all CGI, I was the one that took that picture. So um, sometimes the, the, the enterprise was a tiny little model. Uh, One time we did, we used the, the toy from the Paramount gift store as the model for the poster. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, one time. And my favorite time was uh, I got, I got sent to industrial light and magic uh, to photograph the actual model, which was a gigantic model of the enterprise. The saucer section was six feet in diameter. The whole ship was like 10 feet long and it was on this gimbal like thing that moved it. And, you know, it was, but in that particular movie, that was a Generations movie where Picard meets uh, Kirk. Um, and um, they only used the model for about 30 seconds of the movie because they had to crash it into a planet. So yeah. they built this big, huge model. And in the saucer section, they had little windows. And in each window, there was a 35 millimeter slide of a room interior from the set with a little LED light behind it. 
So you'd walk up to the model and you could look into a window and say, oh, that's the captain's quarters. Oh, that's sick bay. That's, you know, it was like, and there were like a hundred little windows on this model. It was, it was insane. And it only appeared in the movie for 30 seconds. That, that just blows my mind that uh, they put that kind of level of detail. For well, he had the budget. You know, so yeah, John Knowles did the special effects and he had the budget for the best model ever and he used it. And the only reason they used that, uh, they had to build a model was because at that time, uh, the uh, computer uh, CGI was not capable of producing flames and explosion. You know, they didn't have the particle dynamics available yet to actually replicate a real explosion. So they actually blew up this model crashed it you know and blew yeah it up. funny that that's the cheap one. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah you're right that back then um it, it, it that, that that was a very difficult thing to do in fact if i recall the the um the flame technology really came into its full potential uh during uh the making of the first Lord of the Rings movie, uh, uh, just in time to yeah. do the work on the Balrog. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was it's it's interesting. There have been a lot of early iterations of it where it really looked fake, you know. Yeah. And now it's like they can do anything, and it that doesn't involve. So I, you know, the all those guys, those craftsmen that make the models, you know, they they used to say models are still an option. And now they're not an option anymore because it's just, it's just way cheaper to do it digitally. Yeah. So here you are in a interesting position where you are seeing the, the technology change from doing things the old fashioned way. Although at the time it wasn't the old fashioned way, it was uh, the way you did things. Uh, in a very analog fashion, but it's yeah. changing more and more to digital at the time. Like, was that something that, how, how did that make you feel um, uh, for well, craft and for your, your the, the future? Yeah, no. So it's, it's interesting. I, I grew up sort of in the film world and I, yeah. uh, I learned the craft of photography using film and uh, all my experience in the in my early part of my career, certainly the first half of my career, was all with film. Um, but um, because I got involved in the entertainment industry, um, I was exposed to a computer manipulation of imagery very early. Uh, there was a company in Hollywood called Electric Paint, and uh, they used a Quantel paint box, which was an early um, imaging computer proprietary system uh, that cost like half a million dollars, you know, uh, and they became the go-to place for all movie posters. So uh, in, um, in the late or sort of, well, in the, in the late nineties, everything you know, movie posters all had to be done on a Quantel paint box. And it really changed the industry because before that, uh, about, I don't know, like 40%, 50% of all movie posters were illustrations. Yeah. Uh, and quite fabulous illustrations. Um, and if you think back to the first 
uh, uh, Indiana Jones and, you know, the first Indiana Jones movie, right? Yep. That was an illustration. Yeah. Uh, uh, the After that, you just didn't see, you know, the first Star Wars movie was an illustration movie poster. After that, nothing. Everything had to be photographic and it was all composited and done on a computer. So I had a client at the time um, I was doing it very early in the home video days um, at Columbia, RCA Columbia uh, home video was my client. And it was a, it was a cushy uh, bread and butter job where they would give me these mock-ups of video boxes, VHS video boxes with press on type and R prints, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, glued to a box and you would photograph it and that would, they would use that uh, in their advertising for these sort of trade magazines that went out to all the mom and pop video stores that would have to purchase, you know, these videos that they could rent. Um, and it was all about how good the art looked on the box. That was what determined how, how well something rented. So, uh, I I would get cases and cases of these mock-ups and I had a whole system of photographing them, you know, right, left, center, you know, a certain angles. And I shot them on four by five with a view camera because I could correct the perspective and I, you know, would crank them out. And uh, that was a really good gig for me. But at a certain point, they... Um, they didn't, they didn't, they were, they were desperate for material to put on the shelves and they were pulling up movies, forgotten movies from the archives that had only had like a Southern drive-in movie release, right? They're really bad B movies. Yeah. And there was no artwork. There was no movie poster for these movies. They couldn't find anything. They just had the movie and they wanted to put it on a box. So, um, they called me and said, Hey, can you make up something that goes with this movie? And I remember the first one I did was called the immortalizer. And it was about transplanting brains out of young bodies, you know, out of old bodies into young bodies. It was a weird, it was a bad science fiction movie as one does. And, and, uh, you know, so I, I, I photographed a, a, a scene for the VHS video box for this movie and built a whole set and had this whole operation scene, uh, you know, with props and, you know, monster lighting and all kinds of stuff. And it was all done in camera. Uh, and there was nothing in the movie that looked as good as my photo. So, you know, I was totally lying about the quality of this movie with the photo, the image that I created, you know, for the video box. Yeah. And um, and th- so that opened up a whole new career for me. So I was doing all these, you know, bad B movies. And one of the, one of the art directors or the, the actual the creative director at RCA Columbia at the time uh, called me up and said, hey, we're taking your 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 pictures and we're, we're, you know, manipulating the computer. You got to come over and see this. And so he invited me over to this Quantel paint box facility. And, uh, I was watching, you know, <laughs> it was something called monster high. And it was like aliens battling it, it, with a high school basketball team for the fate of the earth, really yeah. stupid movie. Right. 
and so we had like an no alien, Hollywood would never repurpose. right. You know, like an alien hand taking the basketball, which was the Earth, you know, a stock shot of the the Earth, and dunking it into a, a basketball hoop. And so I had photographed all these separate elements, and I went into the the, the this paint box place, and the guy had these images up, and he was really? like putting the earth into the hand and then rotating it and putting it over the, and I was watching this happen in real time. And then I really realized, okay, this changes everything. And this is the future. Yeah. So now this is like 1990, maybe 89, you know, early nineties. And I had already, you know, I, I had a Mac since 1984. Right. But I didn't, yeah. nobody thought that it was capable of doing something like that. And I, and it wasn't at the time. Uh, so, you know, it was, it was, you know, $500,000 to buy a system. And I was like, yeah. there was no way I could do that, but I was really fascinated with it. And uh, when I kept going back to this, this place and, you know, hobnobbing with the guys and looking over their shoulders. And I remember it was Tony Redhead uh, it was the, the, manager of the facility and he would he was an australian guy and he you know what uh, he was always inviting me over and one day i came over and i saw him and he was working on a a new a new thing at the time was cds it lets you know how long ago this was <laughs> so he's doing a cd cover so a cd you know it's a small it's a small print project it's a 10 megabyte yeah. file right <laughs> so he's like going oh lee come over here and check this out uh, I'm using a Mac. In fact, the Mac, the software on the Mac is way better than the software in the Quantel paint box. And I could do this and I could do that. And he was showing me this stuff and I'm like, oh my God, I can, I can invest in this. I can actually get into this. And so I immediately uh, uh, leased a system. I, I, in, uh, you know, I, I got a lease for like $30,000 <laughs> and invested in, uh, a Mac, uh, I think it was a 2FX, which is like the fastest Mac at the time, and a 600 meg hard drive, which cost $3,000. Oh, my and God. Wow. Eight, eight megabytes of RAM, eight megabytes, not terabytes, not gigabytes, eight <laughs> megabytes was like $2,000. <laughs> yeah, that's... <laughs> you know? so, you know, I, I had like I leased all this stuff, and I just dove in, and uh, and it turned out to be a good thing because uh, the Quantel paint box went by the wayside because the Mac became more and more powerful, and eventually everybody was using a Mac. The Quantel paint box facilities went out of business, and every ad agency hired young guys out of college to work their computers, but. In that transition period, I had a really good gig where I was one-stop shopping because I was a photographer and I could do the Photoshop work and make the composites. So I was like the most popular guy with the bad B-movie crowd because they, they could pay me less than they would uh, for a full-on, you know, uh, high-end photo retouch type thing. And I could take the pictures do the composite and create all the artwork for them all for one package deal. And so I had a, quite a career for a while there until, you know, uh, 
every ad agency in the in the country had a, a Photoshop guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so moving forward, like how did how did your how did you evolve from from that uh, position? Like where where, where did you? Where so, did you go from there? So, you know, what happened, I mean, I, w- I had a, you know, a decent career. I, I made a reasonable amount of money and uh, it was pretty busy for a while. And um, I, since I was an early, early adopter, I, I was an early adopter of digital, digital capture, uh, mm-hmm. certainly an early, early adopter of digital manipulation. I was a Photoshop expert before most people were. Right. That and, makes you at least executive producer. I'm... Right. So, you know, <laughs> like um, uh, every, the whole industry, the whole photo industry in, in, uh, in Hollywood was like desperate to learn how to do digital. And I was the guy. So I, I, I can't tell you how many photographers I trained uh, in, in digital once, once it became clear that we had to migrate to digital capture People had to really learn how to use Photoshop. They had to learn, you know, the, you know, what it what it meant to do digital capture. So I was very involved in that whole transition, basically training every photographer <laughs> in the commercial side of photography in, in Los Angeles. Uh, so many people. I, I I so I so I was doing like regular Photoshop classes and. I would, I would, uh, I would set up in somebody else's studio, you know, like different people's yep. studios, and I'd, I'd run classes in the evenings, and then I had, you know, photographers, you know, desperately trying to to learn this stuff coming to me, and um, and that's so that's so high part of the early part of my uh, education career where I, you know, I I essentially became an educator. Um, yes, because of that. And now that's that's essentially my my twilight career here is I'm I'm educating people. That's awesome. And you you've seen Hollywood change one format to the other and, and everywhere in between. Yes. Uh, <laughs> like how do you how do you feel about movie posters nowadays? Because right now you see, uh, and, and there's the I, I guess we could call it a trope where everything is two-toned with the the teal and orange and uh every there is a very (laughs) uniformity to to the posters was there anything like that early on uh with, with with movie posters uh you know i think that it's funny you know movie posters are actually a very conservative it's a very conservative industry (laughs) even though they like to be creative uh, it's really hard uh, to get to get something super creative to fly in that kind of environment because it's it's designed by committee and um, the uh, the movie studios are very conservative so uh, very often uh, agencies will do incredibly creative work and none of it makes it to the final product because the uh, you know that the 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 ad directors in the studios just like to see certain things. <laughs> yes. You know, so it's always kind of a big joke in the industry. Occasionally, you see something you know really creative, and it still happens. You'll see a really interesting movie poster will will show up, but um, 
you know, uh, in it, back in my day when it was fresh, when when computer compositing was like new, um, I think people were maybe a little more uh, willing to accept something out of the ordinary. Um, and, you know, but, but in general, I mean, the whole process, it's like, it's crazy how many people get involved in the decision-making process. Uh, and it's, it's a tough, it's a tough industry. It's really tough to be a creative person. I, you know, the agencies that do this work, it's so hard. It's so hard to, to be, you know, creative and they will show like 40 or 50 different versions of an idea uh, for a movie poster and they'll put them up on the wall. And, you know, they do these dog and pony shows where it's like all these different ideas and uh, the, you know, the studio people will go, well, I like this thing. Can you combine this idea with that idea and, and make sure this head gets a little bit bigger because uh, we really want to see, you know, uh, George Clooney's head bigger, you know, and that that's the kind of thing you're dealing with, right? So yeah. if something good gets past that, you know, that kind of gatekeeper thing, you're like, oh my God, that's great. And I, I will tell you that like 80% of the really good stuff never sees the light of day, Right. Because it gets canceled because they'll go, no, we need we need more bigger heads. <laughs> we need, you know, like forget about the concept, you know. So um, the really good movie posters are things like, and I have to say Silence of the Lambs because that's my most famous movie poster. <laughs> and I had nothing to do with that. I just took a picture of the moth. It was the simplest <laughs> job. They they shipped me a moth. I opened the cover, took a picture of it, sent it back to them, and it ended up. I had no idea what they were going to do with it. And Wait a minute, that's your most uh, famous. What about Virgin High? Come on. Oh no. <laughs> yeah, no, Virgin High. I don't think anybody <laughs> remembers that. But Silence of the Lamb, and believe me, Virgin High was a much tougher photo shoot for me than Silence <laughs> of the Lamb. But, you know, it's like, it's, it's all about, and we, you know, now my wife and I teach uh, workshops, we teach photography workshops and we do photo tours all over the world. And uh, one of the things, you know, my Bobby Lane is my wife and one of her favorite things to say is, you know, that you have to have a concept, you know, like you can't just take a picture of something. You have to have an idea about what it is you you're going to take a picture of and how do you make that make your photo match the concept? How do you make the technique blend and support the concept? So it's yeah. really much more important to have the concept. And, and and that's what I was very involved with with the movie industry was like, what's the concept? What are we trying to say about this movie? You can't tell the whole story of the movie, but you have to like entice the viewer into being interested in this movie. And, you know, something like Silence of the Lambs, which has the moth over her mouth of Jodie Foster's mouth. Yeah. But when you, if you look at the movie poster closely, if you go really close into the back of the moth, there's an actual moth called a death's head moth. It actually has a marking on the back that looks vaguely like a skull. So what they did is they replaced the skull with a 
a sort of a photo homage to Salvador Dali, where the skull is made up of nude figures. Interesting. And it's just, it's like the size of my thumbnail on the movie poster. It's a tiny little area. And they, you know, actually had a Playboy photographer uh, photograph these, these nude figures configured to make a skull shape. And the MPAA, the board, you know, the censor board said, oh, you can't put nudes on the movie poster. So they, they actually had to retouch on like hemlines at their neck for the body suits that the models were wearing. You know, <laughs> so they were they were nude, but they couldn't have nudes on the movie poster on a thumbnail size image on the back of a moth. That's like that's so, fascinating. I, I never yeah, knew about that. It, it's but that's that's the movie industry. That's that's what it's like. It's craziness. It's like creativity slamming up against all kinds of constrictions and and limitations and the fact that they can get a, that they create interesting artwork is just to me is just really amazing. So the Truman show, um, that was a great one. (laughs) That was a great talk about a concept. Each one of the, so the Truman show is, is a, um, is a pixel image where they create a, a, a larger image out of individual pixels, but each pixel is actually a photograph. Right. And so just to put it into context for everybody, we saw a lot of these, I think, in the early, uh, the late aughts, uh, it it, like took off. But this is 1998, at least when the movie comes out. So this is probably done uh, 97 uh, or. or, or... Right. So how, how did you make make this this early on? Well, the, actually, the the uh, the technology to do that had been invented by somebody at, at MIT, I believe, and he had a he had a a, a a a copyright for the process. So Paramount actually went to this guy and said, "We want to do this for this movie poster," and they paid him, you know, a good amount of money. Uh, but you need a you need a data set. You need a set of photos to use as the pixels to create the image yes so the image is of of jim carrey who's who's the character in the truman show who's the you know it's a show about you know uh, a reality tv show sometime in the near future which is examining this guy from baby through adulthood and they're they're photographing they're doing a, a tv show and he's unaware that they are actually putting them on tv so he lives in a completely isolated environment. So the the uh, the movie poster is a, is a picture of Jim Carrey, who's the character in the show, and his photo is made up of all these pixels, which are just big enough to see individual unit photography shots from the set of the movie, um, and they're all arranged to be brightness and color wise match somewhat of the overall pixel structure of the photo of Jim Carrey. Uh, so the, uh, there were like, I think there were about 3000 individual photos that were used to create the pixels and they didn't have enough. So I actually contributed uh, a lot of images of skies to make the background around the head. And those are my 
photos. And I was tasked with uh, <laughs> looking at each individual pixel and cropping it to a square because the, the automated program didn't, it would just crop automatically. And the, the studio was, was concerned that each pixel should be cropped properly so you could see the scene appropriately. So it, I spent like two months <laughs> wow. going through pictures and cropping them into squares and then, you know, color correcting them and stuff like that. And then it all got assembled using this automated software to create the final image. But, and then they, then they went back in and, and also retouched on top of that to make sure that it, you know, it looked the way they wanted it to look. That's incredible. I don't, what, what do you think, uh, and I'm curious just for, for your opinion, best movie poster ever made? What, what do you think deserves that? Oh, I, I don't even have to think. I mean, uh, if you just look it up, if you Google it, and you'll, you'll come up with Silence of the Lambs. It's still considered the best movie poster of all time. Is it? I don't know. I mean, you know, like, but that's uh, gotta be awesome that you, you, that this was, uh, this was your baby. I can't take any credit for it. I wasn't really involved creatively at all. I just happened to take the picture of the moth. Yeah. But you were still involved with it. That's still your baby. Well, I was there and I knew the right people and I got hired to do that job, but you know, uh, the unit photographer that took the picture of Jodie Foster. I don't even know who that is. And, nobody knows it to this day except the guy that actually took that picture you know because if you work for the movies you never get credit for anything but i gotta put it this way when you look at that photo what what is the thing that stands out jody foster or the moth well you know it's it's the concept it's the whole <laughs> thing you can't separate anything out of that. It's it's the treatment of the photo. It's the moth over the lips. It's yeah. the skull on top of the, on the back of the moth. I mean, it 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 reveals so much about that movie, but in a way that's tantalizing. You know, you want to know what is the mystery? Why is this? It's so eerie. It's such a weird yeah. image. And if you walk up to it and you look and you go, oh, what? look, the, the the skull on the back of the moth is made up of, you know, nude figures. This is crazy. So, you know, that kind of thing, that's the that's what a movie poster is supposed to do is like be be so intriguing that it makes you want to see the movie. Right. Right. And 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 that's a tough it's a very tough thing to do in a still image. So in the industry, um, the, the movie trailers are much more important for the studios than the movie posters. But the movie posters are the things that are in the lobbies of the theaters. So it's, it's, it's you know, point of purchase. Those movie posters are there. People come out of a movie and they walk by and they see all these movie posters and they go, oh, yeah, I want that looks interesting. I want to see that movie. And, you know, sometimes the only thing interesting about it is that it has some movie stars that you are interested in, in it. But sometimes the image really is intriguing and, and that's what you hope for, for a movie poster. Yes. This is one of the things I miss about the nineties and early aughts um, is uh, the, 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 the proliferation of movie posters because everybody who is in, I guess, our demographic, our age uh, range, 
We'll remember Prince Plus at the uh, at the mall. Uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll remember going in, and you 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 had the 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 young college students buying their Scarface posters, and I I just loved some of the obscure movie posters. Uh, uh, it, it was just so much fun to uh, find. Old, I mean, to us back then, what were old movies and, and yeah, grabbing them. Oh, th- that that was a great time. Uh, at least for that that uh, that one moment of history. Although the 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 double side, what was it? The other side of the side of the coin is that it introduced people to uh, what is it? Selective color photography and. The less we say about that, the better. <laughs> so, so this brings us to today. You are more of a teacher now. Yes. I got to ask, what do you use for camera gear at the moment? Now, granted, you being an <laughs> ex-photographer, spoiler, I'm, I, I'm yeah. pretty sure I get the break. Right. I, you know, I, I'm, I'm a Fuji. <laughs> I'm a Fuji photographer, you know, you are, you will not be able to pry a Fuji camera out of my dead cold hands. <laughs> I, I love it. Um, and uh, I mean, I was, I was intrigued with the very first, you know, Fuji X, the X 100 when it came out. And, yeah. But I, but the, I, I didn't buy that one. I bought the X pro one. Right on. That was my first Fuji camera and I was totally in love with it. Um, and actually I, I bought it thinking that I just wanted a lightweight camera to take to Europe cause I was doing a trip, uh, and I wanted something that, that was easy to carry. And, you know, I, I bought the X pro one with the three prime lenses. That was it. That was what was available for that camera. The Trinity. Yeah. And, uh, and I went through Europe and when I, you know, I went, was looking through the pictures that I had captured, I was going, man, this stuff is really good. I mean, it was, uh, I, I was, I just fell in love and, and, uh, and so I've, I've been a, a Fuji photographer ever since. And so what, what is in your camera bag now? Um, well, we, you know, my wife and I were both ex photographers. So Bobby Lane and I are, uh, we have, we share our gear, which is kind of interesting because we don't have two of everything. <laughs> so mm. that means that sometimes we argue over like who gets that lens, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so, um, I mean, um, uh, uh, Bobby, Bobby has the X, uh, the XT4. I, I didn't get that. I got the, um, the, the last one I got was the X pro three. Yep. Um, and I have an XT three. I actually <laughs> end up using that quite a bit. Um, but I've had just about every model of, you know, uh, Fuji camera and not that, you know, because I'm an ex photographer, I, I can get that stuff, you know, uh, pretty easily, but I have paid for, you know, a lot of my stuff and I've paid for lenses. I, I, you know, it's not like I get all this stuff for free and that's why I use it. I use it because it's really good. Um, their lenses are spectacular. I mean, I used to be a, a Canon shooter. I sold all my Canon gear, uh, a couple of years ago, I held on to it for a long time for no good reason because the Fuji stuff was so much better. And, uh, you know, so I, I have, you know, you're never going to hear a bad thing from me about Fuji gear. It is 
yeah, uh, that original uh, X100, X Pro 1, that was just magic. Uh, the the I, one it, shot. Yeah, I mean, it was the it was a camera that I understood because at that time, you know, uh, people were coming out with digital cameras and they were they were more like x-ray scanners or something or you know like even even a, a something like a, a canon you know uh, dslr was so it had so many complicated things and you had to go into the menu and it was like you know in the fuji camera it was like there's f stops on the lens okay i get that shutter speeds on a dial okay i never have to look at a menu I can yes. pick up this camera and make a picture and never have to look at a menu. I understand how it works. Why reinvent the wheel? It works perfectly well with this sort of these design parameters. And what they did was they just started from that place. Okay, let's just take all the things about a camera that work and we'll add the digital stuff to it. And, uh, you know, I, it actually took me a while to fall in love with the film, film simulations, which you know, Fuji's the only one that does this right. You know, they, they create these looks that are actually good. They're not just half-assed, you know, color variations that you're going to ignore and go into camera raw and, you know. <laughs> I I really enjoy the film simulations. And with the, I mean, with COVID, and, and like the the labor shortages and everything, um, you know, as of this recording, you know, th- there are just the, the film stock industry is kind of taking a hit. I I, I can't recall which uh, Fujifilm stock they discontinued just recently, um, but this is, and that's just the way things are. It, it, it's yeah, yeah no, the nature it's, of the it's, business. Yeah, it's inevitable. Right, but this is an amazing way to preserve and continue the legacy of film. Well, I mean, you know, it's like it's Fuji, which was a film manufacturer with really good color scientists. Yes, you know, uh, going let well let's let's use what they know. Like, why you know why do anything different? You know, the, the, they've got the, these great color scientists. Why not make them work with the, the, the digital cameras? And, and, um, and that's what's happened. I mean, you know, they, they do amazing work such that you know, right now with the Fuji cameras, I am like, I would say like probably 95% of the time, I am just starting with the JPEG right out of the camera rather yes. than going to the raw file. Um, I mean, it, the, the stuff looks so good. So I, I'll shoot JPEG and raw and mm-hmm. I use the raw as sort of the backup. That's my yes. fail safe. If I get into trouble, I've always got the raw file, but I got to tell you like 95% of the time, 96% of the time I'm using the JPEG because I'm already halfway there. I'm more than halfway there just with the quality of the JPEG and there's nothing wrong with a JPEG. It's, it's, it's perfectly fine. You can't see artifacts. You can't see that's all bullshit, you know? So I agree. And the only time I ever use uh, the, the raw file is 
like difficult lighting conditions. That's yeah. probably the only time I'll pull out the raw file over the JPEG, but I'm, I'm 100% with you. Uh, I I've created my own custom profiles and, and I just use them. And, and then <laughs> afterwards it's just maybe crop here, crop there, minor corrections. Yeah. You know, I'll, I'll take the, uh, you know, the Fuji JPEG and just put a little clarity on it. I'm done. You know, the, it's, the, it's a great feeling. <laughs> I, you know, I, I did a whole article for Fuji Love about the, the, the built, the internal clarity in the, in the Fuji cameras. Yep. And it works, but it, there's a, there's a processing speed timing issue. So if you put clarity on in the camera for the JPEGs, uh, it takes an extra like half a second or a second for it to actually, render that uh, clarity into the JPEG. And mm-hmm. that delays the um, the preview of the file and the, the availability to shoot the next frame. And when I remember when they first introduced that, I was like, I of course, yeah, anything Fuji does, I'm going to just put it into the picture. So I put the, J, the clarity in there and it would just, I would be, why is it taking so long to get, I, I don't understand. And then I realized, turn the clarity off and you can shoot rapidly and yeah. the clarity available in camera raw is has more you have more levels of clarity available <clears throat> and it's not any different so there was no reason to do it in in camera uh so it so the clarity not worth it but the film simulations fuji's film simulations look better than adobe's kind of replication of the film simulations in camera raw. <clears throat> so why bother? It would just use the JPEG, you know? Absolutely. And <clears throat> excuse me. That's okay. <laughs> um, so w- w- how, what, what is your uh, work like now? Is it, it it's just teaching now? Is, is it workshops or? So, so we do, um, we do photo tours and workshops. Um, mm-hmm. We have a, we have a, a, the next photo tour, which, you know, it's all died with the pandemic, right? Yeah. Now that we're kind of coming back, our first uh, photo tour is going to be to Iceland in September. Nice. Um, and uh, great place to go because they were really, they clamped down on the pandemic very early so that's probably the safest country you can go to right now um anyway so we're going to uh, iceland in september with a photo tour we are doing uh venice carnival um in uh, february of mm-hmm. next year and uh, we've been doing a lot of local workshops and we're going to be uh building out more workshops uh, going forward but certainly during the pandemic all of that was sort of killed uh, so we did a lot of Zoom presentations, <laughs> a lot of Zoom presentations. And, you know, I'm glad that we're getting back into in-person stuff. Um, <clears throat> I do a lot of teaching. I have online courses available from my website, which is veris.com, by the way. You know, anybody can go there. Uh, our, our, uh, uh, with my wife, I have bobbyandleesphotoadventures.com, if you just spell it all out. Dot com. Uh, you can see our uh, workshops coming up and photo tours. And uh, we have some online uh, photo courses available as well. So uh, 
that's that's my thing moving forward is the photo education workshops and uh and that kind of stuff awesome and again i i highly recommend everybody go check out your website because the movie posters are awesome you'll get the jeff speakman joke (laughs) (laughs) and um yeah, it, it, it's really cool. And of course, your other photography uh, is just just incredible. I mean, be, between your uh, architecture, your, uh, the, I mean, Burning Man, uh, those, those photos alone, trips to Iceland. I mean, beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. And uh, I highly recommend everybody check it out. And in addition to that, where else can they find you on the web? Do you also have a Instagram? I have, I have an Instagram. I, I post, I try to post like three pictures a day. Uh, I've been very big on uh, color infrared lately. <laughs> but, right on. Um, yeah. So, so check me out, Lee Veris on Instagram. Um, and uh, I mean, I, 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 I don't spend a lot of time on Facebook, uh, but you know, Bobby and Lee's photo adventures is on Facebook. Um, and, uh, you know, you can find me everywhere. <laughs> nice. And tell your wife, I'm going to be reaching out to her soon. Cause, uh, I, I would love to, uh, have her on the show. Uh, oh yeah. She has a whole interesting career as well. Right on. I, absolutely. <laughs> so <laughs> tell her to keep an eye out. And, um, Lee, it's awesome chatting with you. Uh, I can, I mean, the, j- just your Hollywood history. I could keep going on and on about it. And uh, it, it's such a fascinating world. And, you know, the illustration side, uh, incorporating that with the photography, uh, you know, th- that's something that we don't get to hear a lot about uh, because it's, I mean, mainly photography alone, but j- just that added uh added art form is, is just fascinating to 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 learn about and, and uh, to to you know, things that we see commonly just the how they were created is just incredible so thank you Whoa. for sharing all of my that my pleasure my pleasure and, and so you know what we are pretty out of all the guests you you're probably the closest one that i live next to uh <laughs> So sometime during uh, the summer, if when this heat wave finally breaks, you know, sometime <laughs> I'll, I'll treat you for a beer and uh, excellent. <laughs> go from there. All uh, right, but thank you so much. And uh, again, tell the world one more time where they can find you on the web, and then we'll go from there. Well, uh, my website's very simple. It's uh, varis v a r i s dot com. You can find me, uh, and my. Uh, uh, my wife's website is uh, bobbylane.com. Uh, uh, and our joint website where we post all our photo tours and workshops and all that kind of stuff is Bobby and Lee's, no apostrophe there, just L-E-E-S-L-E-E-S, uh, adventures.com. Right on. Everybody should check it out. And Lee... Awesome having you on the show, and uh, we'll bring you back on sometime uh, later uh, to hear more stories. (laughs) Definitely. All right. Thank you.